which is in many ways a better expression of home group than home group. For both things, the weeknight home fellowship group or Bible study and weekend or Sunday morning congregational church, both are acts of discipleship that we need to attend to if we wish to remain spiritually uh, healthy and strong and growing as Christians. Just to place uh, this sermon uh, in context, we're moving towards the end of a series of uh, five sermons that I've entitled, for want of a better title, um, Five Scales of Discipleship. Uh, And today is sermon number four. By uh, five scales of discipleship, I'm referring to five practices or disciplines that differ by way of size or magnitude or scale of operation. And they are, uh, firstly, meeting alone with God. Uh, Secondly, prayer partnerships or triplets, spiritual friendship. Thirdly, uh, home groups and Bible studies, the spirituality of the household. Fourth, Today, uh, Sunday or or weekend congregation, church. And fifth, next week, um, engaging with the wider church, citywide church, national church, global church. So then, uh, perhaps the question uh, that you might be expecting me to answer today is, why is church important? Or, why bother with church at all? And they are both excellent and important questions. And just to give you some idea as to how excellent and important those questions are, I've spent a considerable amount of time in the past few years at various times uh, working to answer those questions comprehensively, or perhaps indeed exhaustively. Um, For example, in 2013, uh, we spent six weeks looking at the biblical doctrine of church in the Bible. And at various times, I've preached on church attendance and its constituent activities as spiritual disciplines. So there's a lot to be said, a lot that could be said, a lot that should be said with respect to the importance of church in the life of the believer, more than can be said today. And given that, perhaps just for today, I thought that we could focus our thoughts about church by specifically thinking about what has God saved us from and what has God saved us for? Simply put, with respect to that first question, God has saved us from sin and from the consequences of sin. Uh, Sin is our natural disposition as sinners born into a sinful world. Sin is uh, our um, rejection of God as king, our rejection of God as king of our lives. Sin is wanting self-rule, autonomy, to be in charge. Sin is wanting to be in charge of our own lives instead of God being in charge of our lives. And as a consequence of sin, which um, pervades and perverts everything uh, entirely, one way or the other, um, not, maybe not completely, but, but everything, um, but as a consequence of sin, we, we tend to be 
highly allergic to God and to the things of God. Uh, our natural disposition is to want to disassociate ourselves from God, from his reputation, from his book, the Bible, from his people, the Christians, or indeed from their activities, like singing to and about Jesus, God's Son. Um, as sinners, we are highly allergic to all that stuff. Sin cuts us off from God, to be sure. But sin also effectively isolates us from one another. In hell, people may well experience uh, some form of belonging as long as they perform and do precisely what they are told. But ultimately, hell will be ever-increasing isolation. Um, it, it isn't uncommon to hear uh, the larrikin or perhaps the, the good time boy observe, when I die, I'd rather go to hell because that's where my friends will be. To which, of course, we can answer accurately, well, you won't be friends in hell. Where, where sin is unfettered, unmitigated, uncontrolled, uh, in hell where, reign, where sin will reign supreme, th there won't be friendship, there won't be love, there won't be family. Uh, there won't be acceptance uh, or the intimacy we crave, but rather just ever-increasing animosity, blame and counter-blame, accusations and attacks, hatred and loathing of others and loathing of self. Sin cuts us off from God, to be sure, but it also isolates us from one another. But thanks be to God who's rescued us from sin, death, and judgment through the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son. We've been rescued from that. God has saved us from the total, complete, and unending isolation that is death for community, beginning with himself, the eternal triune community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, putting us back together. Uh, both as individuals, but uh, also in terms of restoration of, of, of community. Restoration of self, restoration of community. Behold, says the Lord, I am making all things new. Through faith in Jesus Christ, the Spirit works in us. God's restored humanity uh, works, works us into the fellowship of all believers in Jesus Christ. So Peter, writing to new Christians and young Christians, he, he writes, just as, as you come to Jesus, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built together into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And as he continues further down, you, plural, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received 
mercy. So now, filled with the Holy Spirit, we find ourselves indeed not only uh, no longer allergic to those things, but indeed only satisfied by those things. The things that we were once so highly allergic to, the presence of God, uh, talk about God, the Bible, the reign of Jesus, um, we we desire to be with him. We desire to know him and to know him better. We desire to be known as his, wanting to sing to and about Jesus his son, the living stone. So church then is the natural outworking of Christ's work on the cross. The natural outworking of Christ's death on the cross, resurrection on the third day, the ascension of Christ to God's right hand, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Church is the natural product of that work. And the purpose of church, then, to put it as briefly as possible, is threefold. Firstly, the purpose of church is the public worship of God. Secondly, ministry to one another. And thirdly, to engage with Jesus' continuing work to the world. As Jesus was to Israel, so we are to be to the world. We were saved for community, God's church. That's what salvation looks like. And in heaven, in utter contrast to hell, in heaven we have church. Um, uh, church may not be heaven, but heaven is certainly church. And, and so we read in uh, church in eternity and in perfection in Revelation. John writes for us, after this I looked, chapter 7, Revelation, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Hopefully then I've uh, answered the question, albeit briefly, as to why church is important, critically important to the spiritual welfare of the believer. But to return then to our question for this week, how is church a better expression of home group than home group? And to be sure, they, they, can, they can both include precisely the same elements to paraphrase Paul's words to the church in Colossae, letting the message of Christ dwell in us richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in our hearts, devoting ourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, singing, praising, and worship. The Bible being read, taught, applied with wisdom, experience, knowledge, insight, and responsibility. 
prayers and petitions being of all kinds being said. Prayer ministry, the gifts of the Holy Spirit in operation, the fruit of the Holy Spirit in evidence, testimonies and prophecies. All that is encouraging of faith and virtue. Fellowship meals, hospitality, others being invited in to come and see, money being given and lent as needs be, collections being taken up, meals being made and needs being responded to by people who know the situation in detail, guest speakers being invited in from time to time. Am I talking about home group or church? Well, both. That, what I've just said can be, ought to be, should be, can be a description of either or both together. And last week, given that what I've described is both, Last week, we saw how the advantage of the home fellowship group is the intimacy, spontaneity, immediacy that that setting allows. Home group, uh, meeting in private, we know each other and we know each other very well. Whereas at church, we might know some very well. Um, We might know everybody's name, but we don't have to. We don't know everyone equally well, and we don't necessarily have to. So then at church, we forsake some of that immediacy, spontaneity, flexibility, and intimacy for the sake of specialization, differentiation, diversity, and excellence. And one of the ways in which that increasing specialization differentiation, diversity, and excellence is manifest is in the ability of churches to set aside some for supported full-time service to the church. Um, Our um, reading from the book of Nehemiah this this morning uh, comes from a time when the Israelites were returning back to Jerusalem after having been in exile for 70 years in Babylon. Uh, That exilic experience, that separation from Jerusalem for a time, uh, and therefore also a separation from the temple in Jerusalem, that gave rise to the synagogue movement. The focus of worship shifted from temple and sacrifices to synagogue and Torah. In other words, the reading of the Law of Moses, the Holy Scriptures. Based upon the old system of temple and temple priests, the Levites, a new form emerged. Nine households supporting a tenth household by way of tithes and offerings, the tenth household being the household of the rabbi or teacher and his family. The New Testament, in continuity with the Old Testament, in continuity with both the synagogue system and the temple system before that, fully expected churches to have full-time supported church workers. Um, There's any number of uh, evidences of that in the New Testament, but Paul, for example, quoting Jesus, puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 9, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. So then, at its most basic, nine households support a tenth the household of the pastor-teacher. That's church at its most basic. However, as churches grow, 
the capacity for specialization, diversity, differentiation, and excellence likewise increases. So then as churches grow, in addition to a pastor teacher, they might choose to set aside and support in full-time service to the church administrators, prophets, evangelists and outreach workers, children's ministry and youth specialists, music and worship directors, choirs and choir leaders, missionaries and church planters, welfare and charity and aid workers, etc., etc., etc. As the church grows, there's more opportunity for all of the, that specialization. And because such folks work in full-time capacity, they are able to offer not just more work, not just a quantitative difference to the home group experience, but indeed a qualitative difference to the home group experience, specializations that could never be manifest at that level. Uh, in that Nehemiah reading this morning, we heard how the Levites, and Ezra in particular, preached Moses, the book of the law, the Torah. We heard how they read the word publicly, making it clear, or perhaps translating it, and giving the meaning, so that people could understand it, could understand what was being read. At that point in history, it had been a millennium since Moses had written those words, and the Hebrews no longer spoke Hebrew. They spoke Aramaic, which was similar, but not the same. So not only were trained translators required, but indeed trained interpreters who could bridge the cultural distance between the Israelites on the plain, plains of Mount Sinai, under the shadow of Mount Horeb, dwelling in tents circa 1450 BC, and the Jews returning from Babylon circa 500 BC. Without these translators interpreters, the reading of scripture would have simply have gone over the congregation's head. In the New Testament, likewise, we find in places the assumption that the public reading of God's word is to be done not by everyone or anyone, but rather by those who've received training, being recognized or ordained to that specific office, and who have evidenced some kind of gifting in that area. So then, in, in our, just to give you some idea, in our day and age, the expectation of the holder of the office of pastor teacher is that they've had some training, uh, enough indeed to be able to, firstly, have some knowledge, some working knowledge of the issues facing translators and scholars who in turn have had to convey the meaning of ancient Hebrew and Greek texts into contemporary English. Secondly, have some working knowledge about how that text fits into its immediate scriptural context as well as into the revelation of the Bible as a whole, that is to say, how scripture interprets scripture in any given case. Thirdly, have some understanding of the history of the interpretation of that text down through the ages of the church. Fourthly, have some understanding of any recent or current scholarly arguments or controversies relating to that text. Fifth, have some understanding um, <clears throat> of any recent scholarly advances in understanding the text, especially as may, may result from comparative studies and extra-biblical sources, archaeology, ancient history, various forms of scholarly textual criticism, commonly practiced, etc., etc. 
sixth, I think, how that text might be used or has been used by false teachers, and seventh, how those false teachers in turn might be answered, together with eight, engaging with any scientific, philosophical, ethical, or cultural contemporary developments that might influence thought about that text, plus also, perhaps ninthly, how that text might be responsibly and reasonably applied generally or specifically by believers in her or his congregation. So that's just some of the things uh, that preachers have to be trained for. It is not possible to come up, on to, come up to speed with such things without several years of full-time theological and Bible study. And thereafter, it's not possible to remain current without being supported at, at least part-time, but probably also full-time, in order that one might keep pace. Uh, sorry for the excursion. That was a bit of an excursion, but it was meant as an illustration. An illustration, an example, an example of a principle. What is the principle? That church allows supported workers. And supported workers allows increasing specialization, differentiation, diversity, and excellence. This allows, in turn, for weekend church, congregation, to be a better expression of home group than home group. But you don't want to miss out on home group. <sighs> okay. With respect to churches or congregations, then, how little is too little and how big is too big? Well, uh, the median congregation size in the U.S. is 65 persons. In other words, half of all congregations in the U.S. are smaller than 65, and half of all congregations in the U.S. are bigger than 65. In Australia, I don't know what the median is, but I know that the average congregation size in Australia is 121. 121 uh, attendants in a week, so that would make St. Barnabas pretty average. Um, but... 25% of Australian churches have more than 100 in attendance, typically at each service, and 7% um, of Australian churches have more than 300 in attendance each weekend. And uh, we know from various studies that once a community reaches the threshold of 400 people or above, we cannot possibly know, each, know everyone else's name. Um, once a community is more than 400, we've, we've lost the ability to know, for any one person, to know everyone's name. And in those big congregations, um, uh, um, I know from personal experience, in those big congregations where several hundred people are present, it's not unlikely and not uncommon that we might hear exchanges like the following. Oh, are you new here? I haven't seen you before. No, I've been coming here for the last 10 years. When that happens, uh, there's often embarrassment on both sides, and yet actually such conversations are inevitable in congregations of that size. If we assume uh, the rightness of tithing, uh, something that I'm happy to defend, but cannot do so today, if we assume the rightness of tithing, then the minimum church in Australia Sorry, the, the minimum church anywhere would be nine households supporting a tent. And in Australia, that would be a church size of, say, 25 people, given that the average Australian household numbers 2.53 people. 
in my household, I'm the 0.53 people. So if the minimum sustainable church in Australia is 25 people, assuming that all income earners tithe, is there a maximum? Well, we certainly, don't we, we certainly live in the age of the megachurch. Hillsong Church, Balcombe Hills, Sydney. Weekly attendance, 30,000. Planet Shakers Church, East Melbourne, 16,000. Kingdom City, Perth, 11,000. Riverview, Burswood, 3,500. These churches obviously make, manif manif <clears throat> make manifest a level of specialization, diversity, differentiation, and excellence we humble folk might barely even imagine. Certainly, and this is something, of course, that, that we are, many of us are painfully aware of, they can provide not just a full-time children's minister, but full-time children's ministry teams, full-time children's worship teams, youth teams and youth staff and youth programs and youth camps and youth ministry merchandise, matching baseball caps and hoodies, stuff. Given the impressiveness of such things, we might wonder if we're going to bother with local church at all. Well, that is the question of our time. And not a question I can answer, but one that the, the Lord, the Lord of history, will answer. But perhaps, perhaps I could, from my perspective, perhaps I could point out that whilst Riverview welcomes each weekend, the same number of worshippers go through their door every weekend, as does the entire Diocese of Perth, with all of her 100 churches and pastors spread across Perth and WA up to nearly Geraldton and out to the SA border and down almost to, to, um, uh, uh, to Busselton. Um, same number of congregants every week. But Riverview employs, according to its website, only three full-time pastor teachers, not the 136 full-time pastor teachers you'd expect, biblically speaking, to pastor 1,400 households. I guess it swings and roundabouts. Mega churches might be brilliant for many things, including getting lost. My point today, though, is well made by the mega churches. Decreasing intimacy, immediacy, and spontaneity for the sake of increasing specialization, differentiation, diversity, and excellence. And my point today is this. Just as the home group is a better expression of church than church, so too church is a better expression of home group than home group. Because both are important. Arguably, both are essential. Uh, next week, the fifth scale of discipleship and why it's important, engaging with the citywide and global church, a context in which we cannot possibly know everybody's name. And the Lord be with you.